We couldn't have the continuance of the human race without men who are fathers. Now, most of these men are good, and yet even some of these good daddies suffer extreme emotional pain, particularly when you consider that more than one in four live apart from their children. Fathers in breakups and divorces only seem to gain custody about 18.3% of the time. Today, we will hear from a film actor who knows this pain. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Oh, my life, watching America. Oh, my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Daddy, are you out there? Daddy, won't you come and play? The show is entitled, as you know, Watching America, and yet you're going to hear a voice, an accent from somebody across the pond like myself, moreover, actually from the same county. And you may say, wait a minute, this is supposed to be about America, we've got two Brits here. Well, the other Brit, actually like myself, lives in the United States all the time, in this case Los Angeles, but you know him from a variety of different endeavours. This man is prolific in so many ways. I am speaking of Greg Ellis. He is the author of a new book called The Respondent, Exposing the Cartel of Family Law. Now, most of you probably know him from his various uh, acting roles. He was Lieutenant Commander Groves on uh, Pirates of the Caribbean series, the Disney series, multiple times. He worked with J.J. Abrams on Star Trek, the film, yes, and he was Chief Engineer Olsen. But you know him also from Hawaii Five-O, from Fox's drama Touched. He played in Beowulf, across from Sir Anthony Hopkins and Angelina Jolie. And, of course, Titanic with DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. He has done a lot of voiceover work for animation and too many to mention video games. But um, he is a man incredibly adroit at uh, engaging and expressing himself and also bravely addressing things that need to be addressed, which so often have gone unaddressed. Hence, we come back to the book yet again. Greg Ellis and his book, The Respondent, Exposing the Cartel of Family Law. Greg, welcome to Watching America. Thank you for having me, Alan. It's great to be here. Well, before we go any further, um, I have to make reference to to the regional familiarity that we both have. You are from Wigan. And for those who don't know, Wigan is in the county of Lancashire. And I'm from Lancashire. That's my territory. So I have to begin by asking, how does a good lad from Wigan wind up in Hollywood? What was the pilgrimage that you were able to take? I mean, from the land of, you know, Ibagum uh, and Coronation Street to, to being in Hollywood. That's a great question, Alan. Uh, I'll I'll try and give you the truncated version. Um, I left left home around 16, 17, went to London um, and went through various different uh, mediums of the entertainment industry, uh, musical theatre, plays, TV. Then I had a a recording contract, a deal in Germany for a while, did some music. And then uh, I was, I'd done an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical called Starlight Express in London. And um, Andrew called me. Actually, it wasn't Andrew. Andrew had spoken to a choreographer called Arlene Phillips. And Arlene called me and said, look, would you come to Las Vegas and do the show? And uh, I hummed and hard and, and then thought, you know what? I'll, I'll try this. I'll go to, I've never been to America uh, and worked. And I landed uh, in the evening uh, with the neon lights of Las Vegas and spent a very interesting first year in America, in Las Vegas, thinking that that was America. And it, it's part of America, obviously. Yes. And then I came to Hollywood to try out movies and TV and ended up on the set of Titanic. And that was, gosh, 25 years ago, I think now. Was that at Long Beach? Was that down in Mexico, actually, the, the shooting? Yeah, it was Rosarito Beach in Mexico. So we would fly down to San Diego and then get in the crew van and drive across the border to set. And um, yeah, it was an epic set, a wonderful experience. 
So, you know, you really hit it big with, uh, with Titanic, and then you do a lot of American television. Uh, did you take immediately to the United States, or was it an acquired taste, or was it uh, overwhelming? What, what was your experience in the new land, your new world? I really loved it. Uh, I love America. I think it's, it is the new world, the new experiment. Uh, it's such a young country. And the, the sense of opportunity and confidence um, is, is marvellous. Well, let's get on to uh, a variety of other things besides your, your uh, very, very voluminous experience acting and, and doing uh, voice work and what have you. You are, first and foremost, I'm happy to say, a human being, a human being who fell in love. And sometimes when we fall in love, things can go awry uh, and can be quite complicated. Um, all of what we're going to talk about pretty much revolves around the, uh, if you will, the issue of a marriage that went bad. Um, but they don't usually start out that way. So uh, how did you meet your wife? Was she an, an American lady? Yeah, we met in Las Vegas. Uh, she had come out there to work and um, we fell in love and married uh, and we were married for nearly 20 years and had uh, two amazing sons. Um, and for all intents and purposes, we were an extremely happy couple. We had the usual you know, challenges that couples have, but there was never a sense that um, there was never even a discussion about the possibility that we wouldn't continue. We were, we were a well-oiled marriage machine, if you will, somewhat slightly distant emotionally, but, but really successful, I thought, and I think she thought, with our marriage until a fateful day uh, in March 2015. Do you want to take us there uh, regarding that day in March 2015? Yeah, I mean, I write about this in the book. In fact, it's, it's, you know, part of the book opening, so I don't want to say too much about it, but suffice to say, um, <laughs> the cartel of family law showed up on my doorstep and stole my freedom, kidnapped my children, and in effect, murdered my family. And I know that sounds like a Hollywood movie trailer for a psychological thriller, right? But it's not. It happened to me, and it's been happening to hundreds of thousands of people, decent law-abiding citizens across America for decades now. And um, judges, attorneys, state bar associations, uh, none of them want their dirty little secret to get out. Uh, which is that family law is the only branch of our legal system where there is no presumption of innocence. And if you just take a beat and think about that, murderers, rapists, terrorists, paedophiles, all get more legal rights than law-abiding parents. Um, so, you know, I was at home with my boys. Um, I'd taken the afternoon off. We were happily playing in, a play, in the playroom at home, and there was a ring at the door. And uh, I opened the door and the LAPD were at, at my door, my home. And, um, you know, Alan, I wanted to tell you from, uh, from up north in England, an Englishman's home is his castle. Yes. And I thought I knew my rights. I thought that, um, you know, the police couldn't enter my home without a warrant or, um, but having never been in trouble with the police before, having a um, no history of violence, a clean criminal record, uh, the only the only times I'd interacted with the police uh, were to help um, stop a couple of crimes. Uh, one time in London, uh, there was a, an armed robber in a bank who ran out, and I chased him down the street and pulled him to the ground. So it was it was anathema to me. It was it was uh, I was stupefied actually that um, the police would be at my door, and I couldn't contemplate or reason why they were there, but they were, and within. A few hours, they had entered my home, and I was in handcuffs being removed from my own home in front of my sons. As you have described it elsewhere, Greg, um, you went from two police officers to three LAPD, then five, uh, and then what was called, I believe, a smart team came by, uh, and then handcuffs were produced, and uh, you were unceremoniously taken away at that moment? Yeah, the SMART team, they were from the, the DCFS, the Department of Children and Family Services. And they uh, appeared to conduct a psychological evaluation of me um, in my own home um, on a Thursday afternoon evening uh, with the police uh, all, all standing around with the lights blaring um, in my living room with curtains wide open, the neighbors walking by. And... Um, 
I had literally lost all of my rights in my own home. Were your rights read to you? I mean, you you weren't arrested technically, but did they at least go through the Miranda rights type no. thing? No. This is this is what I discovered through my um, dystopian odyssey, if you will, that it's a Kafka trap. This is why I talk about the presumption of innocence in family law and, and, and it being the only branch of our legal system that doesn't provide the presumption of innocence. And like I say, Alan, it, it, it wasn't... I learned, I later learned that it wasn't just me this had happened to. This has happened to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Um, so it's still mind-boggling to me that, and chilling, quite frankly, that you can be in your own home and the police can just walk in without due cause, um, based on uh, anonymous hearsay, devastating. I mean, it's devastated my son's lives. I've lost my son's child. They've lost their, their safe secure, trusting childhood with a father. Um, they adored me, I adored them. Um, and, um, yeah, they're gone. What's so insidious about this, as you describe it, is the fact that um, basically whoever gets in first with the dig um, to bring about the demise of a marriage seems to have uh, nine-tenths of the law on their side. And very often the initial manoeuvre to, to seek a divorce is filed by women. So men are caught off guard very often and they are behind the eight ball, to use the common expression. In your case, the uh, initial complaint that was made, um, I think it's fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, at times your wife struggled with mental health, emotional health, and uh, she became extremely paranoid and um, wanted just to make sure that the children, not from you, but just in general, were safe. And she called the police and the police would not... Um, do anything initially and she said well what do we have to do and they indicated well if she would uh, fear for their safety that you were going to harm them then action could be taken so as you have said 40 seconds later bango um, action is taken a phone call is made an additional phone call and then this entire scenario opens up your life changed um, I would imagine your whole concept of trust in institutions and government bodies changed when you were escorted away and put in uh, incarceration, which in the long run actually winds up happening happening five times to you, and you find yourself behind a clink, bang, and, and you know, very uncinematically, and yet I suppose cinematically, the doors close, what was going through your mind? Oh, um, fear, terror, the inner dialogue, the self-conversation, stay calm. I was asking for answers as to why I was being taken away. I mean, I was thrown in the back of an unmarked police car um, and driven to uh, a hospital first for an evaluation. It was extremely disturbing. And um, it's still, when I think about it, 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 it's still difficult to talk about because um, everything that I knew, everything that I held dear, um, the entire meaning of my life, uh, the senses, the smells, the sounds, everything I'd worked for my entire life after leaving Lancashire um, was removed in an instant, in a catastrophic instant. And um, I just, it didn't seem to stop, Alan. That, that's the thing. I think it was this, this spiral Kafka trap uh, roller coaster ride that had no ascent and descent. It was just descent. And um, I, I recall being locked, locked away under, you know, w with other um, patients, quote unquote, um, and trying to keep my sanity, just trying to remain calm and trying to reason with the system. And there is no reasoning with this system. Let's back up if we can to the, um, and I want to park here just for a second. There is a cultural difference between uh, police in the United States and certainly in Great Britain. Uh, most of our, as I think the world knows, most of our police officers are not normally armed. And there's a kind of careful but methodical approach to dealing with any incident on the part of the British police. And so it's very low-key at first. Can I have a word with you, sir? I'd like to talk to you for a moment. You know, why? What did I do? Well, um, you know, we've uh, got some concerns, you know, and it goes from there. America typically employs what's called a stand-down, is the term that they use in the American um, police force. And I have great um, 
admiration for the job that they do. It's extremely dangerous. And unlike Britain, they never know if anyone's going to pull a gun on them. But there is this um, immediately employed take control aspect. Were they harsh or were they calm? Were they uh, semi-belligerent in their attitude? What was your encounter with the uniformed personnel? Yeah, like you, I you know, having come from England where, you know, if you're, if you're speeding, you, you, you pull over and you, you actually get out of your car and you greet the police officer in America. Right. Yes. That's the last yeah. thing you do. You, you stay there and you show your hands and you don't move. Um, so it is a very different uh, approach to policing. Uh, with me, no, they were extremely calm, which was surreal t- for the first time when they appeared, um, because it was it was very conversational, and I was somewhat uh, perplexed but not concerned, and the concern grew and grew. But it was very calm, and I knew better than to resist and uh, fight and. I just tried to speak reason, uh, and that obviously didn't work. The second time uh, was uh, I found out after the fact. I was actually, I'd I'd, uh, been discharged and got out of my first incarceration, and I went to a neighbor's house. A neighbor was kind enough to, you know, have me over, and I was there, and it was the early hours of the morning, and I was on the phone with my ex-wife, and I didn't realize at the time she was keeping me on the phone while there was a, uh, a, a, a sortie of police officers outside the neighbor's house on some kind of stealth operation to come in and, you know, it looks like a hostage situation I was completely unaware of. And there was this loud bang on the door and I was literally grabbed and pulled outside and cuffed, you know, standing seven doors down from my own home with handcuffs behind my back. The third time was little more violent. That was uh, when I was home and I actually walked outside to greet the police uh, who were on the way. And I actually waved and waved them in to kind of say over here because it was nighttime. And um, literally they hopped out of the car and uh, one officer just, he did the, you know, the typical what you'd see in an American police show, TV show drama. He grabbed me, threw me on the bonnet, um, you know, very violently grabbed my hands behind my back and and threw me in the back of the car and slammed the door. And there I was just, you know, a a common criminal. Although not because I hadn't been arrested and I've never been arrested because I've not committed a crime. Interesting, right? Extremely, because I I don't know, you know, what the term would be used. Um, You're not arrested and yet you are apprehended in some way. I, I, I don't know... Detained. Detained, that's it. All right. Okay, so we go now through these nasty ordeals, and it does sound as though your wife um, has somewhat of a campaign. I'm not trying to demonize her, but somewhat of a campaign to enlist the aid of, of the law when she can. You suddenly have to come to terms with what's happening, and there are no shortage of attorneys in Century City and Los Angeles and uh, Santa Monica who will rally to anyone's aid who has the money to represent them. Um, what was your initial first, if you will, approach to saying, I need to defend myself, I need to protect myself and, and not lose my children? How did you decide upon an attorney and did you even find having to do that incredibly distasteful? Yeah, I I couldn't actually get out of incarceration long enough to uh, even, you know, become coherent to think about how I would find a, a phone or get some money to, uh, or a car, because I was without um, my wallet. I was out without my phone and my car. So I literally, I think it was May, March 10th or 11th, walked into homelessness and then found out that, that uh, much of the money from the bank accounts was, you know, gone. And so it was difficult to, to, to actually contact someone in the outside world when I was incarcerated, because of course, you know, th- this is why I go back to the, the criminal rights. You get the right to call your attorney. Well, I didn't, I didn't have that. I wasn't given that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I am so delighted to have as my special guest, Greg Ellis. He has written a very important book. It's called The Respondent, Exposing the Cartel of Family Law. 
Now, many of you will already know Greg Ellis from a series of Pirates of the Caribbean films in which he has been featured. J.J. Uh, Abrams' Star Trek, for instance. Uh, you know him from Fox's drama Touched. Uh, he has performed with Sir Anthony Hopkins and Angelina Jolie in Beowulf, Titanic, uh, a myriad of, of different uh, voiceover work for animation and for certainly video games. This is not somebody who you would think would be given to having problems with authorities or a public demise of his family, uh, or as he has placed it or said later, uh, basically the murdering of his family, as he would put it. Okay, so you do eventually get a lawyer. And um, I want to ask you, at what point did you cry? Because if I were in your predicament... I'm not ashamed to say I would find myself at some point bursting into tears with just sheer exhaustion, anxiety, and uh, disbelief. Oh, many times, Alan. Um, There there was moments where it was an outpouring of screamed rage uh, with tears weeping down my face at at the... (sighs) Not the, not just the injustice, but the the inability for me to rationalize what had gone on in the world. Like just this reality was just so bizarre, um, and and I think once I once I stepped into that's what I remember stepping into the um, the Stanley Mosque courthouse for the first time, and I had, I was filled with the sense of hope, and. Um, I had no idea when I stepped into that courtroom that I, I'd left America. Um, I thought I was entering the justice system. I was actually entering the star chamber where there, were, there are no rules, where there is no due process, where there is no presumption of innocence. And, and that was chilling. And I, I remember one time I was so distraught and felt so alone and separated from my my boys, my sons, who I knew, I knew were missing me, and I knew that they were in terrible, terrible pain. You know, for, for the first 10 and eight years, they were 10 and eight at the time of their lives. You know, I cut their umbilical cords. We did everything together, my, my sons and I. And um, it was so unbearable, um, this one particular day, that, that my body shut down. Um, I remember being on the floor in the fetal position, and I couldn't move. I think my, my nervous system had had enough. I couldn't speak, I couldn't move. And I was, I was just weeping on the floor. And I'd, I'd had to close all the blinds. I was staying at a friend's uh, apartment because I'd literally overnight become homeless and almost destitute, but for a few friends who were kind enough to loan me some money. Um, and I closed the blinds. And I had to shut out the outside world. I couldn't see uh, or hear another child or a family, whether it be on TV or whether it had been outside in the distance, kids playing, it was just too painful. So I had to, I had to basically talk myself back into a, a mature or a calm frame of mind and, and start speaking and walking and talking and uh, living again. While this is all unfolding, you still have to preserve a career and you have an agent, and you have a publicist perhaps, people representing you, uh, work that's beckoning that may be coming up. Uh, What effect did it have, uh, first of all, on your professional relationships with, indeed, you know, producers, uh, casting agents of this nature? Was it known? I mean, I, I don't presume it was necessarily in The Hollywood Reporter, but still in circles, everybody knows everybody. Did you find yourself having to go to auditions with misplaced shame? Well, quite frankly, what happened was with my career, I, I, I kind of disappeared because I disappeared from my life and my ex-wife uh, while I was inside incarcerated the first time, called my agency, the Gersh, Gersh agency. She called my agent there, Jay Cohen, mm. uh, more than once and said that I was, uh, you know, I was insane and I was bipolar and I was psychotic, none of which was the case. And uh, this unfounded fiction caused me to be dropped by my agency. So I lost my agents, uh, my ability to work very quickly. I do, I do remember a surreal moment uh, after the, the second time that I was um, incarcerated, after I came out 
You have to read the book. There's a, there's a, there's a bizarre moment when I'm walking into homelessness and this guy runs down the street and catches up with me. He said, someone's been looking out for you. Um, come with me. Someone powerful in Hollywood's been looking out for you. And it turns out that there was indeed someone who was looking out for me. Um, a man of deep integrity. Uh, his name was Adam Fogelson. He was the chairman of Universal Studios for about three and a half, four years. And he had employed a security team to track the police scanners because he knew what was going on. He'd actually, uh, he'd been hoodwinked by my ex-wife. Our, our families were friends. And um, he knew there was something not right going on. So they've been tracking the police scanners and this the security team actually stepped in, spoke to the police and I was released and he led me to Adam's home um, at you know, 4.35 a.m. in the morning. And that was the first moment after six solid days of being incarcerated, no change of clothes, of having a little relief. And I remember Adam's wife walking out and seeing my face and there was a sense of relief on her face that everything that she'd been told about me, that I was this crazy person who'd lost my mind. Mm. She was like, see, she knew that that wasn't the case. Greg, it seems to me that you've encountered probably the worst and the best of, uh, of human nature uh, through this trial in, in, in Hollywood. Uh, we'll get to the personal again in a moment, but professionally, uh, how do you reconcile those that dump you? You know, I, I think back of a, a book that came out, oh, probably 25 years ago, which was entitled, You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again. Uh, which basically was about, you know, not working, but just you won't be associated with anyone, period, because of what's happened. This is quite a brave thing for this gentleman to take on um, the consideration of your innocence, albeit when the legal system won't do that. Where do you stand with your perception of, of human nature? Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. My uh, outlook on the human condition has changed considerably since the disturbing events of March 5th, 2015. And there have been a, a great many gifts afforded me because of the experience. And one of them is, is you know, being able to go out and talk about what happened. And the reason, the main reason that I'm going out and talking about it in, in my book and the video podcast series that I do, but specifically my book and the new charity that I've launched alongside at CPU Children and Parents United is so that perhaps, um, you know, when I, when I went through in the early days of what I was going through, I looked for some semblance of reason and hope and explanation. I looked for books. I looked for anyone, anything that could explain what was going on. There wasn't anything out there. The only thing I found in terms of books when I did Google searches, it was legal firms just wanting money. Um, and then there were these books which basically talked about the silver, silver bullet playbook of how to ruin your husband and get rid of your husband and win the cash and prizes and get the house and get the kids. And um, and so that's one of the main reasons I, I wrote the book. The other was to set the record straight and tell, tell the truth because you, get, you literally are voiceless in the legal system. I remember in family law, just the, the first time I read a declaration from my ex-wife and it was so littered with lies. And I, I, I actually remember laughing and, and thinking, oh, this, is, this is preposterous. No judge is going to believe that. And then I got in court. And of course, because there's no due process, no presumption of innocence, I was already guilty. I was guilty till proven more guilty, which is what happens a lot of the time. And um, uh, it's people like, you know, it's not the, the quantity of friends one has, it's the quality. And Adam Fogelson is just a towering strength of integrity. Because it wasn't easy to do what he did to stand up against, you know, to a degree, law enforcement, uh, to a degree, the Department of Children and Family Services, and to a greater degree, the community, because it was a very close knit community. So when the when the evisceration of my character came, it came fast. The reputation savaging went fast through the neighborhood, and he stood firm and tall, and still is. In fact, I spoke to him recently, and. Um, He's going to sit down with my boys. I don't know how he's going to manage this, but he's going to sit down with them and talk to them and let them know the truth of what happened. Um, because in his words, he doesn't like being lied to and he doesn't like being used. The length and extent to which uh, attorneys will suggest 
menacing and cruel things is is utterly unbelievable. Uh, I mean, there are some people who are very well known in in issues that are extremely dramatic. I think of one Miss Allred uh, out in California. Um, the, the, the fact is, is that, for instance, uh, Paul McCartney, we'll just go uh, international for a moment. Paul McCartney with his second wife, as we all know, um, had a, a very nasty end to the marriage. And uh, uh, she alleged, for instance, um, that he was unclean and he had some humiliating things that were brought out to the English press and the sun and various other things about bathroom situations. And I thought, well, that's at a celebrity level. Surely can't hit people on a regular basis. And two, my best friend went through a divorce. And uh, he found out that um, his uh, eventual ex's attorney had suggested that she look and strive for anything that would discredit his nature, including to the point of making reference to him not having flushed a toilet once, uh, which is absurd. But she was told it works. And then to, to you know, have the degradation of having to deal with such um, ridiculous accusations. And yet it's it's all part and parcel, evidently, of how this system works. Hence you using the term cartel of family law. What is the remedy? And will this ever end as long as checks can be written and bills can be placed for attorney's time? Really good question. What is the remedy? Well, there is a, the, the biggest primary remedy is to introduce um, due process. Uh, jurisprudence uh, into family law. You know, we have a system that came about uh, in our criminal justice system um, where the burden of proof is placed uh, is, is squarely on the shoulders of the accuser. Um, and, and that's how it should be. And it's there so that we don't have the Spanish Inquisition, that we don't repeat the Salem witch trials. Um, and, and we don't have that. In family law. So reformation of the family law, the legal system, um, and introducing due process, that's number one. Number two is equal shared parenting. We There's a couple of states in America who have equal shared parenting. And by that, I mean the default position, the rebuttable presumption, de default position when, the, when a marriage goes bad or there's disillusionment should be 50-50 uh, custody. Um, I don't even like saying the word custody. I mean, custody of our children, please. Um, I, we just saw in the, in, the, in the news Brad Pitt, who's been fighting. Uh, fight, he is the respondent too, as is Johnny Depp from 2016, fighting to get to 50-50 and just recently got 50-50. And this is, you know, Brad's a, a great guy, a great father. You know, I used to spend every weekend with my son, my eldest boy and, and his boys at the park. And um, this is the tragedy. You have to fight to get what should be the default position to begin with. And I think as well, there should be better training of judges, psychologists, everyone within the court uh, industry. And also, we need to start calling out people who make false allegations. Um, you know, there is a huge percentage of domestic violence cases that are false allegations. We need to start talking about statistics uh, of, of domestic violence. Um, you know, according to the US Department of Justice, rates of serious intimate partner violence against women fell by 72% between 1994 and 2011. That's not to say that it's not an important thing to focus on still, um, but you know, we need, need to start talking about the silver bullet uh, paradigm, uh, the, fight, the war fighting philosophy in family law, which is, it's the golden bullet, really. I mean, a silver bullet is a simple, seemingly magic, magical solution to a difficult problem. In this, in this case, in most cases, men and fathers, but um, marriage disillusionment, because it is sometimes it affects um, women and mothers too, but uh, not nearly as much as men and fathers. And that silver bullet, I talk about it in the book, the six silver bullets of high conflict divorce and the magic ballistics of family law. You've won before you even enter the courtroom. And, and really the big loss, the big loss of all of this is the moment one party signs a retainer, both parties and the entire family has lost. The estate will be bilked. These attorneys look at the estate and the financial situation. They see how long they can uh, churn, is the term that's used, keep the case going, and then they leave. Uh, my ex-wife had a, her attorney, Judy Bogan. I think she made, 
I think it was around 1.6, $1.7 million for literally um, breaking up our family, uh, being unethical, uh, expressing falsehoods in court documents, in court. Uh, there was one, there was one, one of the more surreal moments, and there were many, was me sitting in court and listening to um, this, this attorney, quote unquote, uh, say that she'd she'd been burglarized and she was living in fear and it was me that had burgled her home and she'd had a she'd done a police report with the Beverly Hills Police Department and that I was a menace to society and I sat there just uh, silent because you have to be silent in court thinking how can she she made this false allegation in court to a judge and was not held accountable at all so it's these unethical scurrilous people and the cottage industry around it the pis you know i had my mailbox stolen um the little time i had with my sons uh it would be interrupted uh by this pis process server with a big silver badge and a, a gun holster and you know concealed but still there and my sons would be terrified and worried i mean i have video of it but no one cared judges don't care um you know all men bad, toxic masculinity, smash the patriarch. <laughs> well, let's address that. I mean, there are people right now, uh, we've interviewed him, uh, Warren Farrell, who was uh, a delightful interview. Uh, here's a man who was a very ardent, still is, uh, feminist. He's very pro-feminism. The, the thing is, is that even on this program, if we give any attention to a male that might be concentrating singularly on aspects of being male and the difficulty of being male, just as there's difficulties with being a female, there's difficulties and injustices that we face as being males. There will be some who will be absolutely livid and outraged that we dare entertain the, the idea. And yet there's great pain and misery and um, suicidal thinking. We know that men uh, commit suicide in higher numbers than women. We know that men die earlier. We know that men have worse health. We know that men are more likely to be incarcerated than women. So there's all these varying uh, legitimate factors that uh, are just blithely ignored by and large by media. Why are we so intimidated to say, look, we're men and we're suffering too? Uh, and there's tremendous injustice here. Why have men in general been reluctant to do that? I think it's a you know multifaceted answer to that that very interesting question. I, one thing I would say is you know I I had Erin uh, Pizzi uh, on my show and Erin Pizzi started the first the world's first refuge for victims of domestic violence fifty two years ago. Wonderful lady, she's eighty four now and still as strong as ever. Has dedicated her life to volunteerism and helping people vulnerable, the most vulnerable among us. Um, so we must we must listen to people like that who've actually been on the, the, the front lines and are actually, you know, actioning, uh, calling selves to action rather than talking about um, being of service. And she she explained to me that when she she'd had the, the her refuge open, the world's first, by the way, and she started to notice that many of the women coming into her refuge were actually committing acts of violence as well. And she saw this, um, uh, she, she spoke out about it and her cat was poisoned. I think she was sent a bomb. The bomb squad came to her home and she was basically hounded out of, of England. And, you know, this is a woman who spent her entire life giving back. And you mentioned Warren Farrell. Um, Warren, uh, his work, uh, you know, he's, gosh, I think he's he'd been published in 50 countries in 19 languages. Stellar, um, stellar reputation. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, his book, The Boy Crisis, is wonderful. It's, you know, with the, I think it was co-authored by John Gray, mm. who wrote The Myth of Male Power. Um, there is an expendability, I think, to men within our current culture. And I think it's it's been this way for quite some time now. And so, um, you know, you mentioned the statistics. Uh, I, I've been talking recently about suicides and social isolation brought on by the physical distancing of COVID and how we humans, we don't need social distancing. We need physical distancing and social connectedness. Um, when you look at the suicide numbers, 800,000 people die by suicide every year, 132 every day. That's one person every 40 seconds. And I think the number's gone up. But why aren't we talking about male mental health, uh, male suicides? You know, nothing tells the story of what men, husbands and fathers are facing more starkly than the suicide statistics. 
um, particularly with divorce. Every day in America, 10 divorced men take their own lives. Um, in general, in America, men kill themselves four times more than women. Divorced men kill themselves eight times more than women. That means for every child who loses their mother to suicide during or after divorce, eight children lose a father. And so when you look at the, the, the wider statistics as well within the regular parameters of the American life, men killing themselves almost four times more than women, 69% of the unsheltered homeless are men, 93% of workplace deaths are men, 98% um, of war fatalities are men, and fathers who become ensnared in this divorce system uh, like I said, killing themselves eight times more than mothers. There's this callous indifference to male death and suffering and um, a, a disconcerting comfort level with male disposability, which has been, I think it's been society's default position for maybe thousands of years. And maybe it is time to ask, Alan, wh where is the empathy for men? Um, this is not to disregard women's historical suffering or to discount the scourge of male predation. But most men are neither predators nor abusers. And I think men need and deserve, I may say, the same empathy and sympathy or compassion that women rightfully demand. And they're not getting it. We're not getting it, in, in particularly in the family law system. I, I think that we're in many ways uh, really caught up in the 1970s and have never left it. Uh, an example I would give is um, my my other life is as a university professor. You can go from campus to campus across the United States, both public and private state in, uh, universities, and you will find invariably almost uh, that there's a women's center on every campus. Where's the men's center? There are none. There are none. The people who are failing and having the most difficult time at universities and colleges are males. And if you look at any campus across this country, pretty much the statistics are the same. It's 60-40 favor of females. And also at the graduate level, um, it's much more favorable to females than males. And I'm just conscious of the fact I said much. They <laughs> My language has come out again, much. Um, and what you do. Fortune thou. Anyway, um, but, and yet it goes ignored, blithely ignored. The media doesn't cover it. No one really thinks about it. And it, it's, it's a shame. I mean, either we look at people as human beings who just happen to have different genitalia as worthy in of themselves, or we don't. But there doesn't seem to be a recognition of that. Well, I, this, I think, is the issue. You know, when, 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 this, when this situation started happening to me, I had a couple of men's rights uh, groups reach out, and, and I sensed a, an undercurrent of um, bitterness and aggression, um, which I think is part of being male. You know, we males can be, you know, very rambunctious and aggressive and outspoken. And so I, I kind of distance myself a little bit from that. I don't approach, you know, what happened to me, I don't have bitterness. I'm not angry. Can I just interject real quickly? The reason, Greg, that we booked you uh, is I have to thank my genius senior producer, Gina Gamboni. She saw you speaking on Clubhouse about what you'd gone through and you were asked if you were bitter and your response was, as you've just indicated now, that you weren't bitter. And we thought that's astonishing because very few uh, persons who have been through what you have been through at least wouldn't be bitter at some point to some degree, even if they may have amended it or, or come to terms with it. What stopped you from being bitter regarding everything that you've been through? And just to catch the audience up for people who are just joining us, we're speaking with Greg Ellis, the actor. His latest book is entitled The Respondent, Exposing the Cartel of Family Law. This gentleman was falsely accused um, multiple times, uh, had dealings with authorities based on untruths regarding nefarious intents, as it was recorded, supposedly, uh, against his own children and his wife, which was not true, proven later to not be true. Uh, he was incarcerated five times, and he found himself at one point homeless and destitute, and his career in jeopardy, and um, hardly finding a friend for a shoulder to cry on. And yet, having come through this, you say you're not bitter. <laughs> You know, forgiveness is not a line that you take, it's a road that you cross. And we, I, I believe that we, we can forgive others, not necessarily because they deserve forgiveness, but because we, or the proverbial I, deserve peace. And choosing 
to live a life of vengeance and anger and retribution and regret. Um, it, it, to me, uh, it, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't sit well with me. And, and look, I, you know, from what I went through, I went on a, a bit of a philosophical journey. I studied a little philosophy and psychology and phenomenology and really got in touch and in tune with, with myself, capital S, and, and, and found a way to, to heal and recover and do that recovery work and, and heal myself and not focus on the other, um, uh, not fo- whoever that other capital O is. You know, there's an old aphorism, a bold eagle complained of being wounded by an arrow veined with its own feathers. And, um, you know, I, I do talk about this in the book. It's an unvarnished account. I, I wasn't without uh, flaws and still I'm not without flaws. We are human beings. We, we, we strive to, to be the best we can be. And, um, and I've learned, I'm, I'm actually very grateful for the experience that I had. As hard as it was, as, as tragic as it was, uh, in one regard, I am very grateful that, that, I was, that I was able to get to know myself and the, the collective community of human beings um, and be more connected to people. I certainly am now more than ever so before. I still, am, uh, I still carry around that inescapability uh, of of the, the emotional trauma and uh, how uh, to sense make that is um, an ongoing um, process and work. But, you know, putting this story out and speaking about it, hopefully, will make those who've gone through it or are going through it or have someone and know someone they love who's been through it and may no longer be with us. Because of this, I mean, I've read so many of the suicide notes from parents, um, many fathers, good, loving fathers who are no longer with us. I've spoken to some, you know, on living on the edge of existential angst and terror, um, contemplating suicide, um, not 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 knowing if they can go on, and so having having some um, paginated totem of hope and a voice to say, look, you know, if it can happen to me, it's a cautionary tale, you know, if it can happen to me, it can happen to you and, and, and it might, and, it, and we need to get, um, you know, this message out. But also you're not alone if you're in this situation right now, if you're, if you're stuck in the divorce trap of the system, hey, I'm here, I've been there, I, I, I see you, I hear you, I feel you, I know what you're going through and you're not alone. Greg, if you could give the world a gift based on what you've experienced and you could say here it is you know it's maybe not bottled but it's encapsulated and you can release it and use it um you might say forgiveness which is certainly uh most worthy but what else would you give the world to help them understand what you've been through and to perhaps prevent it from happening to others well it's a great question um i think i'm 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 trying as best as I can to do that with my charity, which I just started. Tell us about that again. Yeah, of course. So the charitable extension to the respondent is uh, Children and Parents United, CPU. And our mission is to promote and improve child well-being by providing information and resources to policymakers, legislatures, uh, practitioners and the public, resulting in enhanced relationships and reduced conflict for those children and parents navigating our current family law systems. And there are really three programs, three cost-effective practical solution-based programs that we're developing. One is CPU communication, which are workshops and programs that promote improved interpersonal relating. Uh, CPU mediation, solutions-oriented intervention experts to help resolve conflict disputes. And the third is CPU Law, uh, which provides legal service, uh, advice, uh, and supports the mediation process and oversees legal procedures and, um, and keeps people out of court. You know, we're hoping to train judges and legal practitioners to keep families out of court, not push them into the adversarial, acrimonious legal system, which really is just set to pit uh, 
two individuals who made a commitment and a vow to be together, faced whatever challenges and troubles and tribulations there were, and now are represented um, in form by two individuals who have the legal means to keep racking up the billable hours and have no experience with how to mediate through differences. Because attorneys go into court and make arguments. They learn how to argue. So, I can sense the audience members virtually screaming at the dashboards of their cars or with their uh, earbuds saying, asking about the children. How are the children? What's his relationship with the children like now? So, uh, inform, let me ask you, how is the relationship with your two sons now? It's, it's been extremely difficult for my boys, um, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, I think a couple of nights before March 5th, 2015, my eldest Charlie was 10 at the time. You know, I would, I would put them to bed every night, read them stories, sing songs, and um, give them hugs and tell them I love them. And I was hugging my eldest at the time, Charlie, and he said to me, Daddy, so-and-so just, so-and-so's parents at school just got divorced. You'll never get divorced, will you? From mommy, mm. I said, and I mm. made him a promise. I said, no, son, I promise you, that'll never happen. That's how naive and ignorant I was. Yes. And, and so for the last six, seven years, um, both my sons have been placed in this impossible position as their psyches have been growing and through adolescence um, to uh, have to question whether they're betraying one side or the other. And they've been told so many untruths and falsehoods at that early growing period of their lives and their minds and their brains um, that it's extremely, it's a brainwashing is what it is when we talk about parental alienation. So I don't know if that, that will ever be recovered uh, for them, how it will be, um, but I hope to one day be able to love them and laugh with them and protect them and um, just um, be a father because it's the, it was the most important role of my life and it was stolen from me. My guest has been Greg Ellis, the author of The Respondent, which is incidentally also a podcast as well. Look it up. Greg Ellis, the author of The Respondent, Exposing the Cartel of Family Law. I appreciate your time and uh, thank you to Gina for you know listening to me and reaching out. It's been an absolute delight. I, I done so many of these in the past and I'm starting to do them again with this project but I don't think many will be as comfortable and as delightful as this one Alan I am theologically based so I hope you'll excuse me for saying this uh, Greg but bless you and uh, I hope in future endeavours perhaps for promotion of, of some venture involved with that you won't hesitate to call Alan Campbell here and watching America thank you sir so much and God bless You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm Watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.